I love that. My name's Renee. I'm one of the pastors here. It's wonderful to welcome you. Whether you're watching here in the auditorium, we've got a whole bunch of people over in Venue in Munsky Hall watching via video. And, uh, you know, I should mention that uh, the church services here are also watched on video in other churches now all around the world. This didn't happen by our plan. We just discovered that congregations, six different churches in Brazil, are subtitling our sermons in Portuguese. They have live worship, live pastor, and then they watch our sermons as part of their church services. Uh, churches around America, there's a congregation in Fresno that actually some of them are here today. A congregation in San Luis Obispo, they're here today too. So let's just welcome all those people wherever they watch online and on video. That's awesome to see what God is doing. Now, you might notice that something is different here on stage uh, here today. It's all set up, as Val said, for the Lincoln Brewster concert tonight. I was here for the concert last night, by the way. It is amazing. Do not miss it. But I especially love this giant football stadium-sized Diamond Vision Arena screen. That's actually what this thing was originally designed for, was to be used in a sports arena. It's stunning. And while I'm happy I get to use it for the sermon. You know, being a sports fan, I would kind of really like it to, to do what it was originally meant to do and show something like this. Doesn't that just make you feel all warm and tingly inside? You know, that's just beautiful, you know? But seriously, uh, it is Advent. And during Advent, we remember that uh, a very important person will be returning soon, Madison Bumgarner, to the Giants. But you know, <laughs> but seriously, uh, many of us are going through dark times right now, especially Niner fans, the way they've been playing. And we need to remind ourselves of an important and timeless truth here in church today. This is very important for comfort in these tough times. Wouldn't you agree with that? I agree with that. That just looks right. It looks right, Trent. But really, today we really are doing something related to Christmas. We're starting a Christmas tradition here at TLC. It's been a tradition for centuries all around Christendom, but in my 21 years here as a pastor, we have never done the traditional Advent. And I'll explain that more in just a second. But part of what Advent means is that every weekend in December uh, and, and for the four weekends leading up to Christmas, a different family from the church will light that week's Advent calendar on the wreath and read the scripture for that week. And so today, let's welcome the Dunbar family as they do that for us right now. Verses from Isaiah chapter 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Amen. Let's thank these guys. Great job. That was beautiful. I love that. Very, very nice. Well, this morning, what we're going to do is do some detective work. 
all right, and investigate those verses that you just heard the Dunbars read from Isaiah chapter 9 and look at the hope for dark days that they offer. But first, here's what I want to do. Grab your message notes that look like this. And since we are starting this new Christmas tradition here at Twin Lakes Church, let's talk a little bit about Christmas traditions. And let's just take kind of a show of hands audience poll here. How many of you growing up had some sort of a Christmas tradition in your household, or let's say holiday tradition more broadly. Did anybody have something like that, some kind of a Christmas tradition? Uh, they may be so close to you, you don't realize they're Christmas traditions. For example, how many of you hung up stockings by your fireplace uh, every Christmas season? Okay, that's a Christmas tradition. How many of you opened at least one present every Christmas Eve? Anybody do that? Wow. How many of you, it was always pajamas? Can I see that? How many of you resent that to this day? Because I know I do personally, right? Christmas traditions are fascinating. I'd, I'd encourage you to talk to each other about this later on today. But in our family, we had what I thought was a Christmas tradition that everybody did because we did this every single year. And now I realize it's just weird. It's some kind of an odd Swiss custom that goes way back to Middle Ages or, or maybe even further back. And here is what we did. One person in the family, usually a young man, would play the part of the Pied Piper. And he would play on a penny whistle or maybe a recorder, this haunting kind of Renaissance fair-like tune. And he would go dancing and weaving in and out of every single room in the house. And if you were in the rooms where he went, I mean, all the bedrooms, the dining room, the living room, the hallways, then what you had to do was put your hand on his shoulders or the shoulders of the person in front of you. And in doing so, he would form this human train that would kind of just sort of weave around the house, and then it would end up at the Christmas tree where we would all hold hands. Now, I associate that tradition with Christmas. Now, looking back as an adult, I realize it was probably some sort of ancient pagan custom, you know, for, like, exterminating the evil spirits from every room in the house at the end of the new year or something like that. But, uh, but that's what we did. We thought it was normal. Um, then right after that, we'd sacrifice the goat, but everybody does that, you know. No, we didn't do that. But my point is, you may be looking at Advent, and you're going, okay, so we're starting this Advent tradition. How many of you did Advent calendars, uh, cal candles, rather, growing up? How many of you did that? Not maybe even the majority. So some, I didn't do it growing up. So some of you are looking at this tradition going, what is this all about? And why are we doing this as a church? What does this actually mean? So let's talk about it. What is Advent? Well, the word Advent simply means the arrival of an important person or the beginning of an era. Like you could talk about the advent of the Internet, right? But when it's used at Christmas, Advent refers to both the first and the second coming of the Messiah, all right? His first advent is what we celebrate at Christmas, when Jesus Christ was born. That's the first advent. And we live between that and the second advent. That will be in the future when Jesus, the Messiah, returns and all things will be made right again on the whole planet. You know, the lion lying down with the lamb and, and all wars stop and all disease ends. And advent, the advent season, is about remembering both advents. Really, the promise of Advent and the reason that we celebrate it by lighting candles is because it can be summarized in one sentence, and that's this. This darkness will not last. Would you say that phrase out loud with me? This darkness will not 
last. You know, I look out on the crowd that's here right now, and I don't know everybody's story, but I know some of your stories because some of you send me prayer requests, and I know some of you as friends, and some of you come in for prayer Thursdays with the pastors. And some of you in this room are going through some tough times right now. The promise of Advent for you, suffering with physical illness, for you, going through a relational problem, for you, going through maybe deeper darkness than you have ever known in your life. The promise of Advent is, say it with me again, this darkness will not last. No, say it like you mean it. Come on. This darkness will not last. That is what the candles of Advent shout out to a dark world. Now, the Advent season happens the four weeks before Christmas. And that's when Christians all around the world light weekly Advent calendars in their homes on an Advent wreath like this one on our stage to symbolically remember, say it again, this will not, that's right. And to help us remember this and do this together as a church, since this is something brand new for us as a church, we have put together an Advent devotional booklet our uh, small groups pastor, Jim Jocelyn, and our women's ministry director, Kim Bruninger, helped me put this together. And what this does is this takes you through every single day of Advent, and it gives you a scripture reading. You'll need your Bible, but if you need one, we have free Bibles available for you too. And it gives you some questions to discuss, just meditate on yourself or discuss with your family. And what you do is you light a candle, and every week, there's another candle added to the Advent wreath. Every, every week before Christmas, then there's finally the Christmas Eve candle. And this takes you all the way through to Christmas Day. Now, I want to say something. You do not have to make this complicated or expensive. You don't have to go buy some expensive wreath and expensive candles. In fact, Jim Jocelyn, our small groups pastor who helped put this together in his family, they just found a big branch that fell down in the storm outside their house, and they drilled five holes into it and plugged in candles they already had and stuck this on their mantle, on their fireplace, and this is what they're using. So Advent doesn't have to be store-bought. It can be very organic and homemade, and we've got some other tips here in the book you can pick up, again, for free after church. But you may be asking, why celebrate Advent? Why do all this? And I know some of you are asking, because some of you are even suspicious of candles in church. You're like... It's like new agey or liturgical. Can you really love Jesus and do this? So I really want to address this. Advent is really all about one word, and here it is, anticipation. Anticipation. Do you remember how much you anticipated Christmas as a kid? In fact, here's another audience poll, show of hands. How many of you ever did this? Before Christmas, when nobody was looking, you snuck under the Christmas tree and tried to figure out what was inside the packages? Anybody ever do that, right? You couldn't stand the way. All of us did that. But here's another question. How many of you actually unwrapped any of the presents and wrapped them up again and had to fake surprise on Christmas morning? Wait, keep those hands up. Keep those hands up. These are the latent criminals in our group right now. <laughs> Beware of them. Kids love anticipating Christmas. Grown-ups almost dread Christmas, right? But Advent is a way to recapture the childlike wonder and anticipation. You know, there's a character in the Bible mentioned in the Gospel of Luke, an old man named Simeon. And shortly after Jesus is born, he sees the baby Jesus. And Luke describes him this way. He says, Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. 
That means he was a Jew waiting for the advent of the Messiah. Now check this out. The word waiting, there is a compound word in the original Greek that literally means waiting forward. Don't you love that? Waiting, but not with a sense of it's never going to happen. May as well give up hope because nothing's going to change. No, Simeon was waiting with a forward lean. He knew God had a plan. God was in control, and he never gave up hope. And I just want that whole concept to encourage you right now because all of us in this room are waiting on something, right? And it's easy to feel like God has forgotten you. But God is going to come through on schedule. He has a plan. Don't give up. Wait forward. Advent brings hope. Why? Because, listen, Advent is not just about remembering the story. Advent is about remembering my place in the story. That we live between the first Advent when Jesus came to give us hope for salvation for our souls and hope for salvation for the world, and we live between that and the second Advent when we know that hope will be firmly established. We live right between the two. We live in the tension between the two. But the second Advent is as promised and is as sure of a thing as the first Advent was. That is the big picture that remembering Advent gives me, and I love that. It gives me hope because it gives me a sense of perspective that is so easy to forget, right? And so with that introduction to Advent, with that picture of what Advent is all about, let's dive into the classic Advent verse. You heard it earlier from the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. And I want to start by reading this verse out loud together, all right? Everybody in here, let me hear your voices. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Now, let me just stop for just a second and go, what? <laughs> who, who, who are, who is this even talking about? What people? What light? You know, remember what we, we just finished 40 days in the Word, right? And remember what we learned about understanding Scripture. You've got to read in what? Context. So what's the context of this verse historically? What exactly is this verse referring to? Let's look at the problem that this verse solves, and it's very easy. All you've got to do is look at the verses right before this, the last two verses of Isaiah chapter 8. Look at these verses. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they're famished, they'll become enraged and looking upward will curse their king like cursing the president, right? They'll curse their king and who? Their God. And so they're looking upward and they're cursing God. Remember that. And then they will look toward the earth and they will see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. And what's happening here historically in Isaiah chapter 8 is the people of Israel have been invaded by the merciless Assyrian army. And the Jews are kicked out of their homes. They're scattered. They're refugees. They have lost everything. And consequently, they feel crushed and brokenhearted and devastated by evil and suffering. 
And this verse is in the Bible and has resonated with people since the, this was written six centuries before Christ. And so this has been in the Bible for 2,600 years. And for 2,600 years, people have related to this because no matter who you are, you have felt like this. This relates to anybody in the whole world. There's times when all of us look around and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. In fact, maybe you feel like that right now. There's been a run of bad breaks or a bad test result or confusion in a relationship. Or maybe you just look at the news. You know, you're addicted to headline news or whatever, and, and, and it's just gotten you thinking how dark this planet is. And at times, you and I just might curse the king and curse God. But the cool thing in Isaiah, check this out. The cool thing in Isaiah is that God doesn't curse back. Instead, he gives a promise that darkness, say it with me, this darkness will not Last, Isaiah 9.1, nevertheless, people are cursing God, but nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. Now, this is so good because watch the detail here. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Those people, the people walking in darkness, have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness a light has dawned now again what is he talking about what's the way of the sea beyond the jordan what is galilee of the nations when you really look at the context this amazing verse it's already amazing but your mind will be blown check this out a map of the mediterranean in Bible times, there were empires like Rome and Greece and Persia and Egypt that were the dominant superpowers, and what they did was they built a road along the coast of the Mediterranean, tying all their empires together, and this main trade artery was called the Via Maris, or translated in English, the Way of the Sea. That road is what this verse in Isaiah chapter 9 is talking about. Now, there was one tiny little spot where the route that this road went through got very, very narrow. And all the nations and empires tried to control that one little spot because they knew if they controlled that bottleneck, then they could control the trade of the whole entire world. So let's zoom in a little bit closer on that one tiny spot, the northern coast of a lake called the Sea of Galilee. This is in the northern part of the land of Israel. And the Via Maris, or the Way of the Sea Road, ran at one point right between the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and the Galilean mountains. And so, check this out. The whole region was called Galilee of the Gentiles, or Galilee of the nations, even though it was part of Israel, because all those different empires went to war over this tiny area century after century after century. And one would conquer it for a little while, then some other empire would kick them out. And the locals, what do you think was happening to them in this process? They were just getting beaten to a pulp. 
by all these giants, you know, these mammoth empires and armies crowding this territory. But that is why still today you find ruins of pagan temples all over this land. Even though it's from the land of Israel, you find Egyptian ruins, you find Roman ruins, you find Greek ruins, you find Persian ruins. Ruins from every culture, really, in Western civilization are found right there. Why? Because all those people established themselves for a while in this area. And this is why the Jewish people, who really were headquartered further south in Jerusalem, despised this place. When Isaiah was written, they considered it defiled by centuries of all of this pagan influence. So it was Galilee of the Gentiles, the land of darkness. But now watch this, because God does something with a bad situation. The place where the way of the sea road gets the very narrowest is a little city, a little village called Capernaum. Does that sound familiar? The trade route of the whole world passed right through this little town, and this becomes the center of ministry for Jesus. Why? Well, there is no better spot on earth from which to influence the whole planet without going to a big city like Rome, because in this little town of Capernaum, the whole world is literally washing up on your doorstep every day because of the trade route. So whatever happens there is going to get carried like seeds in the wind to the far parts of the planet. And that is the place that this verse is talking about. Galilee of the nations, the way of the sea, up north beyond the Jordan River. This was known as a place of spiritual darkness, a place of physical suffering. But Isaiah is saying the Messiah will arise. A, a, a light for the whole world will come out of a place of deep darkness. And do you see what hope this gives to you and me? First of all, what, whatever circumstance you are in, no matter how dark it is, health-wise, relationally, any other way, it is never so dark that God cannot be glorified through it. Because people looked at this place and it's just like, this is just... It's like maybe what's happening in Syria or something now, only it happened there for centuries and centuries and centuries. War-torn. But Isaiah's saying, ah, but God's going to use that to make it a place where the Messiah can spring up and influence not just Israel, but the whole planet. And there's a second thing that's astounding about this, and that's here in Isaiah, written six centuries before Jesus Christ. Isaiah prophesies that the Messiah will arise in this part of the land, on this road. He's basically giving the street address to the headquarters of Jesus Christ. Stunning. And then Isaiah goes on to talk about what this person will be like in verse 6. And I'm going to camp out here for the few minutes we have left because Isaiah says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. Now, let me stop there because first we see the Messiah will be a human child. This is very important. He won't be just an emanation. He won't be just a manifestation of God. He won't be an angel. He'll be a human being. But this human, there will be some unique things about him, to say the least. He goes on and says, and the government will be on his shoulders. In other words, he'll be the Messiah. And watch this. He will be called, read the rest of this verse with me, those four descriptions. Let me hear it. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Four descriptions of the Messiah. 
And there are four things that we know the Messiah will do to bring us out of our darkness to ensure us, say it with me, that this darkness, what? Will not last. These are on page two of your notes. Number one, it says, he guides me. He guides me. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor. You know, maybe right now you need that desperately. Because again, something's going on in your, in your finances or in your private life or there's a sin you're struggling with. What makes him so effective as the wonderful counselor? Jesus is the ultimate counselor because being human, he knows how I feel. And being divine, he knows what I need, right? Being human, he knows how I feel. The Bible says he was truly human. He was tempted in every way just as we are. And that means he, when you say, Jesus, I am really struggling with anger. I'm really struggling with lust. I'm really struggling with this temptation. He will never hear your prayer and go, you are what? That is disgusting. I cannot understand you human beings. He gets it. He's been here. He sweated drops of blood resisting the temptation to run away from the cross. He gets it. He sympathizes. But being God, he knows exactly the right prescription to lead you out of your darkness, which will not last forever. Now, we could talk for an hour just about this, but it gets even better because this verse, Isaiah 9, 6, also says he rescues me. He not only guides me, he rescues me. It says he'll be called mighty God. Now, stop right there just for a minute because that is just mind-blowing just on its surface. Would you just think about this for a second? A child will be born, and this child will be called Mighty God. What? Here, six centuries before Jesus Christ, you see this hint of Christian theology that Jesus is 100% human. He's born. And yet, he is also mighty God, truly divine. Now, let's dig deeper because this is so cool. The root word here for mighty, used in Hebrew, my friends who are Hebrew-speaking tell me, means hero or heroic, a doer of great things. Now, let me just ask you to think about this just for a second. When you hear the word hero, what image kind of immediately pops to your mind. Probably these days in American culture, somebody like Captain America, right? Or maybe Iron Man, one of the Avengers, right? But what did the Jews reading this for the first time think of when they thought of a hero, the Messiah? They thought maybe somebody like Moses, somebody like David. In other words, all of us are thinking of human beings. But watch this. This verse means the Messiah will not just be a human hero, Right? That is the best hope that people living in this land of darkness in northern Galilee could possibly conjure up. Someday a great warrior will arise like Moses or David. But this says, guess what? The Messiah will come and he'll be human, but he will be your hero God. I love that because it's the best possible combination hero of all. The one who created every star in every galaxy all across the universe became a little baby. Unto us a child is born, a son is given, who is mighty God. Mind-blowing. 
And specifically, the word for hero God implies the one who brings order out of chaos. Listen, do you need somebody to bring order out of the chaos of your life? The hero God can do it. I want to show you something. Since we've got this beautiful big screen behind me, I want to show you the classic Christmas painting that this year I've become sort of obsessed with, all right? This is by Rembrandt, and, and I, I love this painting. I mean, I, I've, I've looked at this over and over and over again for several days, and there's a lot of reasons I love this, because he doesn't over-sentimentalize the nativity. He doesn't over-spiritualize it. Nobody's got any halos on their head. There's no glow except for the glow from their fire. Very human. Based in reality, you see Mary and Joseph and the baby, they're in a cave, which is probably what it was, not just a human, a wooden stable, rather. It was a, was a cave there. And the only light is a, some light from the stars and the light of their campfire. And you see there a little shepherd boy and some animals. And as your eyes sort of adjust to the darkness of the picture, you can see another shepherd way off there in the distance starting to come with his staff because he and his buddies have just heard the angels just over the hill. But it's very subtle. And it's all very fragile. And I love how you see this from a far distance because this is just how inconsequential and small the birth of Jesus must have seemed. So fragile and little. Now, you combine this with some of Rembrandt's paintings of Christ on the cross, and then you get the heart of Christianity. Mary's tiny baby is the hero God who became heroic in his human fragility. And in that fragility did the greatest act of heroism ever. He paid for the sins of the world. And God did this because he loves you and wants to save you. You know, all the other religions of the world, or most of them, have some sort of story of human beings going on a quest to find God. But as far as I know, only in the Bible do you have the awesome story of the quest that God goes on to find you. The Bible is not a story about human quests. The Bible's a story about God's quest because he loves you so much. Now, this is good already, but it gets even better because the third description means he adopts me. He adopts me. It says he'll be called an everlasting father. Again, mind-blowing hint of future Christian theology, right? The child is called the father. There's so many places I could go with this, but for now, think of the best things about a father compassion, strength, encouragement, coaching, right? Good, loving discipline, teaching. Now, I know some of you are thinking, huh, not my dad. Maybe your dad was not there for you. Maybe your dad left the family. Maybe there was a divorce. Maybe your dad died. Maybe your dad was just a dysfunctional dad. Like you never knew what kind of a dad you would find. He'd be good dad, and the next day or the next hour, he'd be bad dad. And so you're always, you didn't know whether to wince or to hug him. But do you see what this word means? 
God is the everlasting Father. He always lasts as the good Father. This means he will never, ever leave you ever. He will never hurt you ever. He will never forget you ever because God as a father lasts forever and he wants to enfold you with that love. And so as a light from my darkness, Jesus guides me. He rescues me. He adopts me. This is this mind-blowing description of the Messiah that puts him in another category far beyond just the political hero that everybody in the world at that time thought they needed. Isaiah's like, you have no idea what he's going to do for you. Because finally, the fourth description here in Isaiah 9-6 is this. He calms me. Calms me. Anybody need to hear this today? It says he'll be called the Prince of Peace. You know, they say the season we're about to enter is the most stressful time of the year. It's the most stressful time of the year, right? But the Messiah is the Prince of Peace. And yeah, I got to, again, kind of plug that little Advent book. It's very simple. It's free. But you've spent some time in the Word, and the Messiah will bring you peace. And not just the kind of peace you feel when you look out, say, at a beautiful Aptos sunrise. One of our great TLC attenders, Heidi Heath-Garwood, sent me this picture last week of, of this amazing sunrise. And when you look at something like this and you know Jesus, and you think, the God who made this sunrise loves me and knows my name, you feel blissed out, you feel happy to be alive, that's great. It seems like peace can't go deeper than that, but it does. Because the top peace robber is guilt over actual sin. You've been there. I've been there. Maybe that's robbing you of peace today. Listen, you don't have to let your guilt today rob you of peace because the Prince of Peace can deal with it once for all. Look at Romans 5.1. Now, I want us to read this verse out loud together. Let me hear you. We have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What Jesus did on the cross brings you peace with God forever. That peace starts in your heart, and then one day at his second advent, the Prince of Peace will put an end to all war and bring total, complete peace to every atom of the universe forever. And we really need that hope today, too. Look at the screen. NFL player Benjamin Franklin, who plays for the New Orleans Saints, uh, posted something on his Facebook page a few days ago. It's since gone viral. And I'd really encourage you to look up the whole thing. It's remarkable. But I want to show you just a part of what he said. He says, at some point while I was playing or preparing to play Monday Night Football, the news broke out about the Ferguson decision. Well, here are my thoughts. And he's an African-American player. He says, I'm frustrated because pop culture, music, and movies glorify these types of police-citizen altercations and promote an attitude that continues to get young men killed. I'm fearful because in the back of my mind, I know that although I'm a law-abiding citizen, I could still be looked upon as a threat to those who don't know me. I'm sympathetic because I wasn't there, so I don't know exactly what happened. And he goes on, but then he ends with this. I'm encouraged 
Because ultimately, the problem is not a skin problem. It's a sin problem. Sin is the reason we rebel against authority. Sin is the reason we abuse our authority. Sin is the reason we're racist, and sin is the reason we riot, loot, and burn. But I'm encouraged because God has provided a solution for sin through his son Jesus, and with it a transformed heart and mind, one that's capable of looking past the outward. And he says the cure for the Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, and Eric Garner tragedies is not just education or exposure, it's the gospel. And so finally I'm encouraged because the gospel gives mankind hope. Don't you love that? That's the hope of the Advent he's talking about. That's the answer. It has to start from a conversion in each individual human heart as we let the, peace, the Prince of Peace reign. And then at the second advent, we have hope that that will be perfectly realized. You know what I want to do? I want to show you the best TV commercial of the year so far. I guess I'm going to take a break from my sponsor here from my sermon, but I want to show this to you. Uh, this was put out about a week ago by a store called Sainsbury's in the U.K., and I love this because it's a dramatization of a true story. This is well documented. This is something that happened up and down the trenches during World War I between British and German troops on Christmas Eve a hundred years ago. This actually happened. Watch the screen. Jenkins, open. Nine. Otto. Pleased to meet you, Otto. Freut mich. Rose, she's called. Um, schön, um, schön.
Christmas. Frohe Weihnachten. scene. Historians say that there's all sorts of letters from people on the front, both German and British soldiers, writing home, saying to their families, you will never believe what happened on Christmas Eve. They said it's like the spirit of Christmas took over, and all along the front lines, we gathered together and just played and sang songs and had a good time, and then when it was over, the war resumed. And all human beings, our hearts just resonate at, at, the, at the dream of when it doesn't end. The dream of when the spirit of Christmas just takes over for good, for real. And the promise of the first advent is that that will happen at the second advent. That one day, just as surely as Christ came, he'll come again. And the prince of peace will rule the world and bring his peace to every heart, everywhere. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Are you looking forward to that? Because my heart cannot wait for that. It can't wait for it. The day will not only all war, but all cancer, all disease, all Alzheimer's, all MS, everything, all relationships will be healed. It'll all be over as the resurrection reigns. And you know what's interesting? If you really listen to the words of our familiar Christmas carols, you'll find something surprising that you may have overlooked. Many of them are actually more about the second advent than the first. Joy to the world, listen to the lyrics. It's about the second advent. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. That's about the hope of the second advent. When Christ Jesus will reign indisputably as the Prince of Peace. And what I need to do is I need to wait forward like Simeon did. He waited forward for the first advent. I need to wait with forward lean for the second, knowing that, say that line with me again. Can you remember it? That this darkness will not last. But I have a question. If all this is what the Messiah came to bring, why don't I always feel it? Why don't I always feel guided or feel like God's my hero or my father? I don't always feel calm. Why aren't we experiencing it all the time? Let me close with this. The secret is in the overlooked phrase, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Do you get that the key is that I allow God to rule in my life? One day, all government will be on his shoulders, but it happens one heart at a time. Like 12-step groups say, I turn over control of my life to his power, and then I will experience all these things more and more. I will resonate with his guarantee that this darkness will not last forever. Let's pray together. Would you bow your heads and your hearts with me? Lord, thank you so much that this is your promise to us. God, we look forward to the coming light. We celebrate the light that came at Christmas. We realize we're living in between those two. So help us to wait with forward lean, not hopelessly. Now, as our heads are still bowed, I want to invite you to make this verse personal. 
pray something like this, maybe for the first time, maybe as a recommitment. God, thank you that you love us so much that you became our hero. And so I'm asking you today, guide me, rescue me, adopt me, calm me. I place my trust in the Messiah, in his past and future advent and his current advent in our hearts. Help us wait forward. In your name we pray, amen.